Again, good morning. I'm glad you are with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 1. We'll be looking at that psalm this morning as we start a new year together. This is the first Lord's Day of 2021. And I thought it would be great to start our time together with the first book of the Psalter. The first book of the Psalter, 150 different chapters, different books within the the Psalms that many of us will be reading this year. Many of us will give our lives to them devotionally, and I thought it might be a good idea to start with the first one. And so we're going to read Psalm 1, and I will pray for us, and we'll jump in. This is God's word for us this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. This is indeed indeed your word, Lord God, and so we ask that you would attend to it by your spirit. Would you speak to your people, though they are tuning in virtually, would you be present with them as they open up their word? Would you, by your spirit, open their hearts, open my heart as we look at your word together? Would you speak, O Lord, for your servants listen? Amen. I want to start off this morning asking you a question, and the question is this, does does God want you to be happy? Does God want you to experience happiness in this life? As I asked many people this week, that question, almost the answer that came so quickly was this, God is not concerned about my happiness, he's concerned about my holiness. The Christian life is about following Jesus by taking up our cross and following him daily, dying to sin and living to righteousness. And so no, God is not concerned about my happiness He's concerned about my holiness. But I wonder if that's faithful to the scriptures. I'm wondering if you have a hard time answering that question this morning. Does God want me to be happy? And why is that hard for us? Why is it hard for us to think that God might want us to be happy in this life? Well, I think it's because this concept of happiness has been so co-opted by our culture that happiness is is the greatest end of human experience here in this life, that we have a negative response to it. After all, we live in the age of the self. The great idol of our culture these days is is self-expression or self-realization, self-governance. The self is what is most honored and dignified in our culture and what feeds the self but happiness and pleasure. And so when we come to this question, does God want me to be happy, we think, well, this is a worldly question. God doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to be holy. And yet, three nights ago, we stayed up late. Many of us stayed up late to see the new, uh, to hear, to experience the new year coming in. And what do we say? Happy New Year. 
we said to each other? Do we mean that or is that just some kind of phrase we say? Do we want people to experience happiness in this new year? I do. I want to experience happiness and I'm sure you do as well. And yet the world and how we understand the world and what it's doing has really tainted this understanding of happiness. And so we've created this unhealthy division between happiness and joy. We've made this massive distinction that what's pure, what's good with Christians is that they should experience joy but not happiness. That happiness is this fleeting emotion that the world chases after, but joy is something that's sustaining, that's not fleeting. And that's what's pure, that's what's right. And yet, I'm not sure the Bible allows us to do that, to separate those terms so drastically. Although, uh, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus speaks to his people, teaches them about what the kingdom of God is like, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The word blessed means to be happy. Happy are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are those that are persecuted for my sake. The Bible says. And just this past year, we read through the Heidelberg Catechism together, this great catechism for the 16th century. And the second question says this Did God create people so wicked and perverse? The answer is no. God created them good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, live with him with all of their heart, and live with him in eternal happiness. So does God want us to be happy? I think the testimony of all of Scripture is yes. God does want us to experience happiness in this life. Why am I talking about this? Because Psalm 1, the very first verse, is blessed is the man. That word there, blessed, means happiness. The very first psalm in the Psalter is referring to a happy person. Where to find happiness. It's speaking to this concept of happiness, and it's a unique word. It's not just this fleeting happiness. It's a happiness that speaks to self-contained joy. It's a happiness that means regardless of circumstances and what's happening around us, we are satisfied and content. The psalmist here is talking about being satisfied, being happy, knowing the joy of the Lord. And there are two points that I want to draw this passage that help us down that path to happiness that the psalmist draws out. One is this, he avoids something and he delights in something. What does he avoid and what does he delight? This person that is happy, joyful. Well, the first thing we see is he avoids orienting his life around the ungodly. He avoids orienting his life around the ungodly. I want to be clear here from the very beginning. The psalmist is not saying avoid the ungodly. He's not saying distance yourselves from them so as to create this Christian commune. No, he says avoid doing life around them. We as Christians have the great responsibility and joy of taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to this world. The only means of salvation for those that are hurting, that are lost, that are wicked in this world is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we as the church have the great opportunity and the great blessing and the great responsibility to take that amazing news of God's grace to the world and share it. And so the psalmist is not saying avoid the ungodly, avoid the world. What he is saying is don't orient your life around them, around its 
uh, ungodly presuppositions. Where am I getting that? Well, the phrase, the psalmist uses three phrases here at the very beginning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. If you think with me for a second, what are three things you do every day that take up your life? Three things. You walk, you sit, and you stand. You get out of bed and you walk into the kitchen to get your coffee. Maybe you sit down at the table to read the paper or the news or do your devotional. And you stand up and you walk back and you get dressed. You get into your car, you go to work, you walk up the steps, you walk, you sit down, you stand, you go see somebody in your office and you stand and you talk to them. These three things, walking, standing, and sitting, encompass all of life of what we do. And I don't think it's lost, it shouldn't be lost on us, that those are the verbs that the psalmist is using. He does not, he does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of, seat of scoffers. He does not uh, walk in the way and the counsel of the wicked. He's talking about doing life with the ungodly, the wicked, the world. And why does he say avoid that? Why does he come down and say avoid doing this? to realize happiness and joy in our lives. Well, three reasons, I think, he tells us. The first is because the company of the ungodly, the company of those that are wicked, the company of the world is not life-giving. It has no substance to it. It has no weight. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. He uses this metaphor of wheat and chaff. And if you know anything about Wheat and chaff. Chaff is this covering over the seed or over the wheat. And what somebody would do is they harvested their wheat, they would take it to the threshing floor. And they would pound the wheat, whether with their feet, with their hands, or with some kind of hard substance. And they would separate the chaff from the seed, from the wheat. And then they would take a winnowing fork. And when the wind picked up, they would throw the wheat in the air and the chaff would separate from the seed. Why? Because it's weightless. It's worthless. It has no point. And the important part of wheat, would the seed, the grain, would fall to the ground and, and the farmer would collect it. And here the psalmist is talking about the ungodly. The wicked are like chaff. There's no substance to them. They're empty. They're weightless. They're worthless. They have no purpose. And so the person that is, knows fullness of joy and fullness of happiness avoids them. Because relationally, they don't bring anything to the table, ultimately. They are empty. They have no substance to them. But what else? Why else does he say avoid orienting your life around the ungodly well, secondly, it's because they're on a path of judgment. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment. The psalmist is not speaking of some temporary hard time or some momentary difficulty of a bad decision. No, he's talking about the final judgment, the judgment, where all of humanity, all of creation will be laid bare before God. The holy, transcendent, all-powerful, holy, holy Holy God, who resides in unspeakable glory, will judge all of creation in his transcendent power and might. He will judge us. 
everybody. And the ungodly, though they might have a leg to stand on in this world, when they come before a holy and just God, they have no leg to stand on. They will be brought low. And their desires and their pursuits that inflame the pride of their hearts here in the world will be exposed as foolish and bankrupt. They're headed toward judgment. Where people are heading toward, when people head toward something, it informs us if we should follow them or not. You've had this experience with your children or your grandchildren. I'll say, I'm going to the grocery store. Does anybody want to go with me? I'm headed in that direction. And I almost get no takers. No takers want to go to the grocery store with me. But if I was to say I'm going to Baskin Robbins or I'm going to a candy store, they would all jump into the car with me and want to go, right? Because where I'm headed informs if they should follow me or not. Where the ungodly, wicked world is headed is toward judgment. And we should not follow their wisdom. We should not orient our lives around them. Yeah, there's a third thing why we should avoid the ungodly, the wicked, and not orient our lives around them is because they're not family. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This congregation of the righteous is speaking of the people of God, God's covenantal people those that he's placed his name upon, those that he loves, those that he has redeemed and welcomed into his presence. These are his people. And what the psalmist is saying is that the wicked will not stand with the righteous. When that judgment day comes, they will not be part of us. They are not part of our family. We long for them to be part of our family. We long for them to know the healing grace of Jesus. But they don't. And they live according to the presuppositions and desires and hopes of this world. And thus they're not part of our family. And so the psalmist says we need to avoid doing life, orienting our lives around the ungodly and the wicked. And so what do we do with this? What do I do with this? Well, we need to evaluate who we keep company with. Your relationships truly matter in this life who you relate to, who you do life with, who you pay attention to, where you're getting your counsel matters in this life. This is the whole point of Joshua chapter 1. When God comes to Joshua and tells him to be strong and courageous, so often we interpret that in military terms. Joshua's going in to to, uh, take over the promised land, the conquest of Canaan. And we hear that it said, okay, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Take up your sword, take up your spear, and be a mighty man in battle. But I'm not exactly sure that's the point here in Joshua 1. I think God is telling Joshua to be strong and courageous because he's about to enter into an ungodly place. A place of people that don't worship Yahweh, don't worship God. He tells them this in Joshua chapter 1, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses the servant has commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This is the book of the law. It shall not depart from your mouth, but but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous 
and then you will have great success. This Psalm 1 echoes that passage. God warns Joshua to be strong and courageous, to be faithful to his God because he's entering into a land of people that don't know him, that are wicked, that are ungodly. That will influence him and influence his people away from him. And that's, what's ha- that's what happens as you read the story of the Bible, that God's people enter into Canaan and they start worshiping their gods. They start intermarrying. They start doing things that are disobedient and not being faithful to their God. Why? Because they're influenced by that culture, that place. They did life with them. How does this practically affect me today? Well, we need to ask ourselves, who is it that we do life with? Who is it that we are best friends with? Who is it we spend most of our time with? Who is it we listen to? Maybe many of us have uh, Christian friends. But the core of our community is the church, is this place. And we do life with them. We raise our kids with them. We teach them together. We play with them. We go on vacations with them. But at the same time, we have these things called phones. We have these things called social media. We have these things called influencers that we look at daily. And we hear what they have to say. They post images about what we should be like or what we shouldn't be like. Social media is not bad. It's not evil. It can be used for evil. It can be used for bad. But to say it doesn't influence you is naive. To say that it has no voice in your life is, I think, naive. And we have to be careful about who we listen to, who we give our attention or our time to, because it influences us. And if it's ungodly and it doesn't pursue righteousness, is it worth giving your time to? Is it worth orienting your life around? Because all it will do is will zap you of the happiness and the joy that God wants for you and wants for me. So the first thing the psalmist says is that we should avoid doing, orienting our life around the ungodly and the wicked. But he moves on. He says something that we should delight in. Verse 2, but his delight, the one that is happy, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What does it mean to delight in something? Well, it means to find pleasure It means to enjoy it to its fullest extent. It means to be happy, to find delight in something. And the psalmist here is saying the happy person delights, finds the fullest extent of joy and happiness in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. It consumes his time, his thoughts. It is part of the rhythm of his life. He gives himself to it. Now, when we see this word law, so often we read that and we think of the Ten Commandments. We read this passage, and for years I thought that the psalmist was talking about we should meditate day and night on the Ten Commandments, the law of God. I should be spending most of my time in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and and hearing of the law and meditating on it and going it over and over, over in my mind. But I'm not sure that's exactly what the psalmist is talking about here. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. This word Torah, which we translate as law, represents the first five books of the Bible. 
We call them the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The person that is happy, the person that knows the joy of the Lord, meditates, delights in reading God's word. And why? Why does he delight in that? Why is he full of joy and happiness as he reads and meditates on God's word? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, he knows that God's law is not simply contained in imperatives and commands, but God's law is a story. It's a story of God's grace, God's faithfulness, and God's goodness to a people. And it's not just a story, it's the psalmist story. It's a story of his people that God created, that God redeemed, and that God blessed. It's a story of of God's people rebelling against him, and yet God constantly loving them, caring for them, restoring them back to himself. It's a story of God's covenantal relationship with a people that rebel against him. It's a story of God that loves his people so much that he wants to be with them. That he, he teaches them a, how to build a sacrificial system for their sins to be dealt with so his presence can be with them. He loves them so much and is committed to them so much that he longs to be with them. That is the story that the psalmist is in love with. That is the story that he delights in. That is the story of the Bible, of the first five books of the Bible. We just had Christmas and many of us sat around with family and kind of a tradition in, in my family is, is we tell stories about past Christmases and we laugh about them and maybe you had this experience and, and one of the funny stories that keeps coming up in my family almost every Christmas is how my father caught our chimney on fire and on Christmas morning we had to call the fire department and they had to come and they soaked my parents' living room because our chimney was on fire, and we laugh about it, and we think it's funny, and we recall those moments. And as you listen online, as you are with us via live stream, or you're present here, you, you chuckle at that, and you think that's funny, but not in the sense that I think it's funny, because it's my story. It's the story of my family. It's personal. It's rich. And I delight in it. And that's the point of the psalmist here. That he relates to this story that he is one of the redeemed. He is the one that God has placed his name upon. He is the one that God loves. In his rebellion, in his disobedience, God is still faithful to him. And loves him. And so he delights in that story. But there's a second reason why the psalmist delights in the law of the Lord. It's because he knows it's a matter of life and death. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Here the psalmist is using a simile. He's he's referring to this happy person as a tree that's planted by streams of water. And not just any tree, but a fruit tree placed right there where there is life. And this tree is being nourished by these streams. It has a life-giving force next to it where it where it gains substance and life. And the word of God is pictured here as that water that feeds the tree, that brings life to the tree. It's alive. It's flourishing. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And the simile goes on, and he talks about the tree. 
and its leaves that never, never wither. Why do trees' leaves die off? Why are we still raking them in our yards? Well, I had to research it this week. It's because there's certain cells and molecules that trees have. And as the temperature changes, the tree realizes there's going to be less and less water. And so to conserve water, it cuts off the water absorption from the leaves. And so the leaves die off and they fall to the ground because the winter is coming. And the tree knows that it needs to conserve water to get through the winter. The word of God is a matter of life and death. It brings life and brings sustaining life. Even in the the winters of our lives, in the darkness of 2020, as we attended God's word, it gave us sustaining grace. It gave us life. And there are days ahead of us where we're going to need it. Days ahead of us where we're going to need the sustaining grace of God's word. We need it every day. It's a matter of life and it's a matter of death. But lastly, why does the psalmist delight in the law of the Lord? It's because it causes him to be a blessing. Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. It is a fruit tree. And as it's nourished by the word of God, as it's nourished by these streams, this person produces fruit. And this fruit is for all to see and to take in. This reminds us of Genesis chapter 12, that God's people are to be a blessing. We are to be a blessing to this world as we know the true blesser and we take him to the world in all his grace and his love and his truth. They are to feast upon the good news of the gospel that's produced out of our lives as we attend God's word, as we listen to it, as we orient our lives around it. The psalmist delights in God's word because it makes him a blessing to others. Two weeks ago, I was on social media, and a certain pastor that we know posted this. He was reminiscing about his time in seminary, and he said this, the president of Westminster Seminary, President Clowney, said he was concerned future generations of believers would still defend the Bible's inspiration, but increasingly disregard its operational authority. When I read that, I was stopped in my tracks thinking about myself, that I too would affirm the inspiration of God's word, and yet do I come up under it Do I see it as having operational authority in my life? And I was convicted. And maybe this morning you are convicted too when you hear something like that and you're telling yourself, well, he's right. I need to read God's word more. And we default into this this sense of duty. It is a good thing. And I should give my life to it. It's a good duty as a Christian to read God's word day in and day out. And yet the psalmist is not talking about duty. He's talking about delight. Delighting in God's word. And so how do we change our hearts? How do we go from duty to delight as we engage the word of God? What starts with this tree. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. What we need to see here 
is that this great simile, this, this great picture of a person that's happy and joyful, a person that's being nourished by the word of God, a person that's flourishing and a blessing to this world, his origins are by grace. Who he is is all by God's grace. This tree did not plant itself. Somebody had to plant that tree. Somebody had to take that seed and put it in the ground. The tree couldn't do it itself. The tree was planted by the great planter. And not just anywhere, he was planted by streams of water. The great planter knew exactly where that tree needed to go. And he planted it into the ground. This is a picture of God's grace. That how our hearts change from duty to delight is understanding that God has planted the seed of salvation in our hearts. All by God's grace. We know him. We know his word to be true. Why? Because he's revealed it to us by his grace. Not by anything we have done. Not by anything we will do. But it's because he's placed his love and his grace upon us. That we can understand that this is his word and it is for our good. And it is grace that motivates us. Duty is not all bad. But the psalmist is not talking about duty. He's talking about delighting, finding joy, happiness, and reading and orienting our lives around God's word. And that can only happen if we taste and see of the grace and the goodness of our God. The only reason that we're tuning in right now, the only reason that we read God's word, the only reason that we understand it is all by his grace, all by his favor. He is the one that plants the seed in our hearts and waters it by his spirit. There's nothing I can do as I stand up here and preach to change your heart, to cause you delight in God's word. That has to be done by the spirit of God, and I trust that he is doing it. The person that is happy is blessed all of, of grace. The psalmist realizes that true life-giving happiness only comes through the grace of God. And this grace of God is not com completely comprehended in the story of the Pentateuch. Because the story of the Bible goes on. And we know it's better understood in the person of Jesus, who is a fulfillment of the first five books of the Bible, who is a fulfillment of the Psalms. It is Jesus Christ who is the life-giving force in our lives. Verse 6 says this, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The, word there, the Lord loves the way of the righteous. What the psalmist didn't know, and those that listened to it didn't know possibly, is that this way is not a path or a map, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ himself who tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, that he is the way, he is the life, he is the truth. And there's no way to know the Father except by him. The tree is planted by, the, the tree that represents this happy person is planted by streams of water. But the tree that pictures Jesus Christ is not a tree planted by Streams of water, it's a tree planted in a garbage heap. It's a tree that's not sourced by living water. It's a tree that's sourced by mocking and judgment and death. It's a tree that doesn't produce colorful leaves and lively fruits. It produces blood and agony. Because upon that tree was laid the great creator, the great planter, 
the one who planted all of creation, who planted all of Israel in the promised land, who planted all the wisdom and the knowledge in David. And he's the one that's planted all the truths of God's word in our hearts. He is God himself, God in the flesh. The person that knows happiness and joy knows of Jesus, knows of his grace and his love. True happiness comes, true satisfaction comes in Jesus Christ. And why is that? Why does he know true happiness? Because he has written the story of redemption. He's included us. We are now part of that story by his grace. It is our story. And he is our king. He is our God. He is the one that loves us and cares for us. And he is the one that has promised us, as we read earlier, earlier, eternal happiness. That is what he wants from us. Does God want us to be happy? Absolutely. But not happy in this world, in the things of this world, but happy in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has lived and died and sacrificed all things to deal with our cancer, to deal with our pain, to deal with our sin that we might live with him in joy forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we ask that you would awaken our hearts to receive this truth, awaken my heart to receive this truth. That we would know of the true life-giving force in this world which is you, Lord Jesus, through your word. That we are all just trees planted by streams of water by your grace. And you've given us your word. You've given us yourself. And so would we take of it this year? Would we know happiness? Would this be a year of happiness and joy? That's not in control by our circumstances, but is dictated by your word. So, Lord Jesus, would you teach us again? Would you open our hearts again to receive it? Would our lives be oriented around it this year? And may we indeed have a happy new year. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing.